There is a gold mine of data found in your customer support tickets, feedback, bugs, operational improvements, product ideas, you name it. Your customers are begging you to fix their problems. And our sponsor this week, OmniPanel, does the job to surface all of these insights for you automatically and send them to the right person on your team. Next time there's a bug request, boom, goes to the product department. Next time there's an operational idea, great, goes to your COO. There's never been something like this before and I'm really excited to share OmniPanel with you, a great software to streamline all these requests. If you're interested in trying out OmniPanel, go to omnipanel.io and let them know Forward Thinking Founders sent you. That is O-M-N-I-P-A-N-E-L dot I-O. Thank you so much, OmniPanel, for sponsoring this episode of Forward Thinking Founders. Now let's get into today's episode. What is going on, everyone? Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Forward Thinking Founders. I am very grateful to have your attention, at least for the next 15 minutes of this episode. Forward Thinking Founders is a podcast where I interview pre-seed and seed stage founders about their products, what they want to build into the world, and why. We dive into how they spend their time, what's their vision, what's the origin of stories, all these things, so you can learn all about what's coming tomorrow. Because these companies haven't hit critical scale yet. Most of them haven't hit product market fit. These are just early stage companies, and the big question is, what can this be? And in this podcast, we bring that out. So with that, I really hope you enjoy your time listening to today's episode. And I've already done 200 plus, so if you like this one, listen to some of the other ones, like with Imadi Kuhn, Austin Allred, Leah Culver. We have great interviews, so check it out. Enjoy the repository. And for now, let's get into today's episode. Here we go. All right, how's it going, everyone? Welcome to another episode of Forward Thinking Founders, where we talk to founders about their companies, their visions for the future, and how the two collide. Unless it's an episode that is Partner Mondays, which we do weekly, which is today. Today, we are not talking to a founder. We are talking to an investor. On this investor's name is Bart McDonald. Bart, welcome to the show. How's it going? Matt, thanks so much for having me, man. Appreciate it. Day's going well. Thank you. Awesome. I am really excited to have you on for, for multiple reasons. One, I just love talking to investors. But two, I also found out you are an investor literally like within 10 square miles of where I'm located right now, which just blows my mind. So let's start with, before we kind of go there, um, kind of in, if you can do a brief intro on you, your firm, just like kind of a quick, you know, quick little intro, then we can dive into how the heck you ended up in Scottsdale, which is where I live, and we can kind of riff on venture capital. So intro, and then like, how'd you end up here in, uh, in uh, the Dale? Amazing. Uh, great. Try and keep this really quick. So hail from Sydney, Australia, originally, so a lot further west, uh, grew up uh, from an entire family of entrepreneurs. So Dinner time conversation for our family was always pretty interesting listening to parents and, and all the siblings, their journeys as, a, as entrepreneurs. Classically trained in business and human resources, came out in the middle of the Great Recession, wanted to become a management consultant, zero jobs available. So I uh, took the next best thing, was an amazing graduate program at a, one of the world's largest mining companies. And I uh, realized that I love being around people, but uh, just the, the pace of organization was not fast enough. And also being someone that really focused on uh, personal growth and, and financial uh, independence. Realize that the, the, the path through you know, creating the biggest impact in the world and biggest impact in myself and future family was through technology and, and using that as really the, uh, the application of how I was going to be an entrepreneur. And so I uh, started my entrepreneur career probably in late, uh, late teens, 
um, have now been extremely fortunate to have been a, a co-founder and, and CEO or general manager of four different types of uh, businesses, uh, all software, whether they're marketplaces, education technology businesses that have a kind of a hybrid online digital presence through to an offline uh, or on-campus presence, which is a, an amazing company called General Assembly, which I uh, cut my teeth into pretty early. Employee 28 there and, and rode with them for about 800 employees just prior to their acquisition. Uh, all the way through to them coming out from Sydney via a few other cities uh, around the world, which I'll, I'll answer in your next question, to San Francisco and uh, started my, uh, my last company, a company called Sapling HR. We're in the mid-market HRM, uh, human capital management space. We raised just under $10 million from Google's AI fund, Gradient Ventures, and uh, built out a tremendous company over the last five years. Uh, the back end of last year was continuing to, to rock it along, but I realized that I wanted to scratch the next each of my uh, you know, in my career path, which is to go from being uh, 100% operator to operator and investor. And, and so I started spending a lot more time giving back to the community, advising and investing and ultimately spun out uh, Bloom Venture Partners and uh, still very much active on the board of Sapling today as we continue to, uh, you know, really dominate in that mid-market space uh, and continue to grow that company. But uh, now I sort of sit on, present on a number of, of boards and uh, I'm very active uh, with, with my responsibilities at Bloom. So Bloom Venture Partners, for those who don't know, is a, is a new type of investment firm meet startup studio. We have three different offerings or, or pillars that we, uh, we present to market. First is a, a studio that we do around product design, development, and growth marketing for SaaS companies. Secondly, we have a, a VC arm, which does um, you know, early stage investing uh, for companies that we think have just tremendous you know, moonshot potential and, uh, and really support those founders far more remarkable than, than I ever was uh, at sort of accelerating product and company building efforts. And then lastly, uh, the, the most recent addition we've added on is a, a buyout. Um, and, and that's really recognizing that, you know, there are just so many amazingly talented entrepreneurs in market today. So many amazing businesses that get to that point of initial scale, a million, $3 million of revenue as a software, as a service company. Um, but ultimately these are, you know, they're just not venture scalable uh, businesses or they're, you know, amazing bootstrapped, potentially lifestyle companies that the founders just want to go on to the next project. And so for us and our team of, of folks that have got, you know, years, decades of operating experience, taking brilliant products in really large markets and then providing a, a SWAT team who's really focused on growth, marketing and sales. Um, you know, that's kind of a, a perfect partnership. And so that's what we've been doing here at, at Bloom Venture Partners. So you've been busy. You've been, you've been very busy doing a lot of stuff. Um, and, you know, most recently now Bloom Venture Partners. Congratulations on that. Um, I'm curious. So when did you, for the, um, I guess when you started the firm, um, how do you kind of think about splitting up the different arms? Like, I feel like my world is mainly venture capital, but you also have this studio, you also have this buyout. Do you have different leads for different parts of the company? Um, or how do you kind of balance the different activities that the, um, that the firm kind of partakes in? Yeah, great, great question. I think that's just been a, a very organic evolution as well. I think today we're kind of one of the only firms. I mean, look, there's a number of amazing companies uh, out there or funds that have, you know, a different model, whether it's science labs in LA or atomic VC or beta works um, folks up in, in Canada, like tiny capital, you know, these are all funds or teams that are kind of addressing or providing a solution to market and through different flavors, right? Maybe it's a, an incubator where the team will actually, uh, you know, 
have the kernel of the idea and then we'll basically bring a founding team in who gets some equity and they also have a fund off the side that directly incubates with both the idea, the team and the capital to get started. There are other models that kind of go out and, you know, bring a team in, but they do investment or the, the capital provide provision for both their internal incubator projects, as well as they do externally focused uh, financing or venture capital arms. So lots of different approaches um, for us, you know, kind of the, the, the organic evolution, as I mentioned, is that, you know, my, my kind of career trajectory, I've just been really, really fortunate. I'm, I think as many people would know, like Australians are quite Antipodean and, uh, you know, it's kind of, you hear the common phrase of, oh, I've met lots of Australians when I was traveling and staying in a, a backpackers hotel in Munich in Germany for Oktoberfest, or I live here in London, or I was out there in, in Miami and happened to stumble across a couple of uh, Aussies for a country of only 20 or less than 26 million people, I think it is now. Uh, you know, we're, we're everywhere. We, we like to travel. And so that's no different for me. I, I've been very fortunate to spend a lot of time on the road, traveling around, just learning different cultures and working from different cities. Um, so I started my career in Sydney, uh, took a detour via Melbourne and then went over to Singapore and then San Francisco for about five years. And then now most recently out in Scottsdale. And I've just been very fortunate meeting incredible people and uh you know keeping in touch with this amazing network of, of folks uh, around me and as i transitioned operationally from ceo and founder of my last company you know i was just really excited to spend time giving back into the community and coming on board as an advisor or consulting to a lot of different companies and realized that there was this pattern emerging where you know, these founders would have an idea they'd see a gap in the market they'd build product and start commercializing it without a doubt, they'd get product market fit, but then would really struggle at getting go-to-market fit, right? Like how do we repeatably, cost-effectively, you know, capture lightning in the bottle? How do we get that, you know, virality uh, and doing that in a really profitable way? And oftentimes the answer was like, they just, they couldn't and they would need a lot of help. And one of the best things about SaaS as a business model is it just, it's so predictable. Um, and, you know, the, the recurring nature of it, oftentimes there are just like a couple of just like key pillars, whether it's like inbound, outbound or strategic partnerships to, to leverage. And so it's like once you, once you learn or kind of like crack the nut and understand the code, you can't unlearn that. Like sure, channels will change and, you know, something that's really popular, you know, is, a, is an early adopter onto a channel more and more marketers will find out about it and pull the dollars in and the acquisition cost will go up. But like, ultimately, if you understand those basic tenets of like paid owned and owned media and applying that to a, you know, B2B SaaS company, that's got $25,000 ACVs or annual contract values, you can really just go company to company and, and help those teams really unlock growth and escape velocity. And so that's what I started doing, just really focusing on SaaS companies where I've got majority now nearly 15 years of experience in software as a service building out uh you know growth growth and, and product for uh, for those teams and so that's something that we started out there initially working with a, a studio and basically scaling up my efforts of kind of one-on-one -on -one consulting and started putting a team onto these projects from there on the side uh, a lot of the advisory work i was just very fortunate that these founders uh, asked me to come on board and participate in financing rounds and so that was initially my personal capital I was deploying, which over time, more and more people came to me and said, Hey, we're really excited by the thesis of kind of, you know, being one of the first checks in, you know, by founders, for founders, we're not trying to be competitive with much larger multi-stage, you know, billion dollar, half billion dollar institutional funds. We're just kind of writing, you know, those first checks, maybe a couple hundred thousand dollars into pre-seed to seed extension uh, organizations. 
And so that was kind of like the next uh, kind of model or, or kind of pillar. And uh, the, the final, third and final uh, uh, leg on the stool was Bloom Equity. And, and that's something that I'd had a bit of experience in, in private equity previously. And again, had this thesis that over the next five, 10 years, uh, you know, there's just going to be this trove of amazing software as service businesses that, you know, historically just haven't had opportunities to get uh, an exit. You know, founders have been like almost trapped in these businesses. Banks don't want to work with them. There haven't been SaaS specific brokers until, you know, the rise of these great prep platforms like micro acquire and, you know, traditionally strategics won't look at them because they're too small and, you know, traditional middle market private equity shops just won't look at them if they're doing less than 5 million in EBITDA. And, you know, I think that's just a, a huge shame. I think there are amazing of, sorry, a, a, a plethora of these amazing products and businesses that are being built out where for a litany of reasons, you know, founders want to move on. They haven't got the growth they wanted. It's a beautiful business and they just want to go to their next project. And, uh, you know, they can partner up with a team that is going to really carry on the torch and, 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 you know, preserve their legacy, their brand, do the right thing by the team, the customers, and just basically come in at the end of chapter one and then, you know, help co-author the chapter two story from there on. And I have to ask, is this a, do you work on like a global scale, a national scale or like a local scale? I guess what, what I mean by that question is like, you're in Scottsdale right now. Like, are you, are you investing just in Scottsdale? Or are you investing um, in a much larger geography than, than that? Yeah. So I firmly hold this view and have held it for many, many years now. Like talent truly is, is borderless. I mean, and look, to be, to be a little bit contradictory of my, myself here, like, you know, coming from Sydney, I, I very much held the view that, uh, you know, I wanted to, to increase the odds of success of building the, the next software company that I was building, which was, was Sapling. I really wanted to, I wanted to start that on the ground in San Francisco. You know, I wanted to be close to, to you know, candidates and talent. I wanted to be close to, you know, the ecosystem and the, the culture that embraces failure and, and it's kind of had that just that Kool-Aid where you, you just feel the energy when you hit the streets in, in San Francisco. Um, you know, I wanted to be close to the capital sources and sort of develop those relationships just to increase the odds of success or decrease, you know, conversely decrease a lot of the, the risks around building company and not having access to those important inputs. Um, that being said, I think after my experience and I think certainly what's happened with, with COVID and, you know, being thrust five years into the future and, just a matter of weeks, uh, you know, the tail end of, of Q1. I think we're all we're all realizing now that you know people can do their best work wherever they are. You know, as long as they've got a stable internet connection, they've got you know the right pieces of hardware around them, they've got access to, to to video to do synchronous and asynchronous communication. People generally just want to be their best work in an unsupervised fashion. And so I've been fortunate to have built teams. Um, you know, I've been in Pacific time zone and I've got teams you know, all around the world from India to Pakistan, to Canada, to Philippines, back in Australia, uh, working, rowing, rowing just as hard as I, um, you know, towards that shared mission. And so, you know, for us, yeah, I'm, I'm headquartered here in, in, uh, in Scottsdale. We've got team members in San Francisco, Sydney, London, Toronto, uh, across Florida. So yeah, we're, we're all across the map, uh, both as a team internally. And yeah, we're, we're looking for, you know, amazing founders that we can support through one of those one or more of those three service offerings at Bloom uh, all around the world as well. And on the investing arm of Bloom, so what what kind of looks interesting to you opportunity-wise? Let's start with like market. Are, are there any markets that are more interesting to you than not? Or are you a generalist type of, type of investor? 
So great question. On the Bloom Capital side of BC fund, yeah, there are, there are kind of four, we look at this as like four buckets. So or like th like four thematic lines. Um, I'd say we're, we're generally ag agnostic. You know, there are some things that we just certainly won't do. We, we've got to, you know, stay away from kind of, you know, five products that we, uh, you know, we can't touch just due to, you know, the, the fund administrator that we use behind us. Um, you know, we generally don't do, a, a, you know, much in, in, in crypto. It's just not an area that we, you know, a specialist in ergo, we just don't believe we can provide outsized return uh, or sort of value add to, to founders. Um, but the areas, and you're kind of getting a hint here of like where we do specialize is that we, we, we feel we actually have an edge. Like we, we tremendously understand, deeply understand the market. And as a result, we're able to help founders think about product, think about company building, thinking about downstream capital, thinking about access to customers. And so those three three pillars are around uh, future of work, which is obviously where we spent a lot of time building out uh, various businesses, also in, in fintech and then uh, in, in digital health. And so, you know, really for us, it's when we do have like a predilection towards B2B SaaS, this is again, it's something that we know a lot, uh, you know, it comes to us a lot more fluently. And so again, we we're able to obviously diligence a lot of the businesses and then, you know, develop conviction uh, in, you know, teams and markets and products a lot more easily as well. And, you know, to that, I'd say it's probably a you know, future of work. And again, just given what's happened this year, it's, it's kind of been pretty fascinating to have started a, a fund that's, you know, has a large focus on work tech, uh, you know, literally months before the outbreak of COVID and how it's changed the face of how we work. And so whether that's, you know, tools that enable people to work, you know, more collaboratively in a remote environment, so audio and, and video platforms, tools for remote or distributed teams, you know, all the way through to, you know, collaboration, HR tooling, you know, just right across the board, but say we're very much generalist there. And the fourth bucket is just, yeah, we're open. I mean, at the end of the day, we've got, you know, an amazing base of limited partners that we have a responsibility to, to try and drive a, you know, return on a great return on their capital that they've entrusted us with. And so, you know, we, we also look slightly outside to some more opportunistic areas um, you know, whether that's a, a consumer app that's kind of saying that's not as native to us, but we've been introduced and just fall head over heels in love with the founding team because they're just re remarkable. And, you know, we just walk away from the first couple of interactions being like, there's no way they're not going to do what they say they're going to do and they just need capital. And, and we want to be, you know, a cheerleader on the sideline helping them. And so, you know, the fourth bucket there is just opportunistic and you know we're very fortunate now having been in in, in this space and the ecosystem for a, uh, actively for a couple of quarters and obviously with our, our backgrounds as gps you know in the venture community for you know more than half a decade now you know we were starting to see some some great companies that are being introduced to us through other vc peers in the space and, and obviously as our own portfolio grows you know our, our portfolio company ceos are also introducing us to some just incredible uh, ceos and, and founders out there doing some amazing things so that makes sense on the market side, kind of uh, that you have your few focuses, but then like if you see great opportunity, great founding team, you know, you'll, you'll, um, you'll bite. On regards to what does a great founding team look like to you? Um, you know, if there's someone that came in through an intro and you just mentioned you fall head over heels for the, for the founding team, like how, how does someone do that? What, what qualities do you look for that gets you excited about a founding team? Yeah. So, but firstly, uh, and, and I'll start pausing there because it's saying that I'll actually, no, I'll talk to this first and I'll come back and answer your question. It's saying that I've been uh, grokking a little bit recently is, you know, the, the importance of founder market fit. 
And, you know, I originally held a thesis that it's, it's really important to have founder market fit. You know, you kind of, you drink your own champagne, you're building, you know, a product and a solution to solve a problem that you can deeply empathize with. You know, you bring a level of authenticity to the problem space that you can, you know, more credibly speak with the market, bringing, you know, investors who explain the problem and, and kind of, you know, excuse me, how you've kind of built up that, you know, unique insight to be able to peer around walls and see, see where the industry is going. But, you know, equally like that, that's a view that I, I kind of strongly held view that um, I'm really starting to challenge that notion of now a little bit more, you know, I'm, I'm starting to see, again, we, we've got a couple of examples of just the most in, incredible founders, you know, early, early in their career who, uh, you know, actually have, no real right being in a, in a market. Um, you know, this, this example of Lula, uh, a company that we, we recently backed two early, uh, you know, like mid, mid 20 year old brothers in, uh, in Florida. And they're now focusing in the episodic insurance for mobility market. And, you know, we originally, that was, it's obviously it has a, a, a thematic alignment with FinTech for us. I mean, their goal is basically to build, you know, similar to Stripe is, is basically be, you know, the one click API uh, on any website that you need to spin up episodic insurance, whether that's for freight companies who need to, you know, move freight in, across cargo or in, in trucks across America and companies all the way through to, you know, Bird and Uber, they're building that. But the crazy thing is that that company was born out of a complete pivot. The original version of that organization was actually a campus-based ride-sharing app. And, you know, what I just loved about that founding team as, as brothers, it's just like, they're just broad intelligence to just understand a market and first principles come and unpack things. I mean, I'd be trying to book time to, to meet with them during, uh, you know, our, our original first few intro calls. And they'd be like, hey, I, I actually can't meet with you today. Like, I'm really busy studying for our insurance exams. I'm like, wait, tell me, tell me more. And they're like, well, in order for us to be like a licensed, you know, in, in a provider across like multiple states, we're like actively studying for our exams right now. And like that just level of grit and persistence in the face of tremendous adversity, right? They've, they've gone quarters trying to raise capital for the first iteration of the business. They've been able to pick up a little bit of capital, but not much. There was feedback from investors and concerns around the market size and their approach to solving for that market. And then add into the mix, they, the business has got decimated with COVID, right? No one was on campus studying anymore. And so you know, these, these poor youngish entrepreneurs have to like turn around and say like, we're literally gonna have to shut down this entire operation and like hand back investor capital um, and less. And, and, you know, through that process is that they just like kept going back to first principles. I mean, like, what are the adjacent areas? Like how do we, as entrepreneurs, how do we spot a problem? that is like in a large market, it's a repeated problem across lots of customers. It's a must, like customers must have a solution to it, not just a nice to have. And the problem of that, that of solving that problem is so immense that they're gonna pay a lot of money and main, you know, maintain as a customer for several years over. And so, you know, that was something that we, you know, that story to us was like emblematic of like what, what we look for in, in founders, you know, like just grit and, and you know, just, uh, you know, fortitude in, in the face of adversity, someone that can, you know, have that level of resilience, someone that can set a vision and just be, you know, dogmatic and confident, not arrogant, but confident in explaining the vision and, and kind of why that platform needs to exist in the world. And ultimately that, you know, be very clear and just stepping out the blueprint of like, what are the resources that they need 
as an allocator, as a founder and CEO that they need, you know, that's, you know, capital, the talent in what order they need it in, where are they going to apply that talent? And, and ultimately, you know, we just need to be able to develop a conviction that like the market's big enough, the problem, the product needs to be in market today and customers are willing to pay for it. Um, and ultimately that this is someone that can shift from a founder into a CEO. Right. It's someone that can ultimately scale at a personal rate of growth that is faster and is going to continue outpacing uh, that of the business and what the business requires from them as a leader, as they go from you know a team of two, a team of three to 30 to 300 and, and beyond. Yeah, that's very descriptive and extremely helpful to, like, uh, for anyone to think through when you're looking at a founding team. I'm, and I'm curious for you, like, how do you... Um, I don't know. You, you obviously talk to a ton of founders uh, as someone in your kind of in your in your position. What is something that you wish more founders knew um, about the process, about building companies, about pitching you, um, about a- anything? You know, you, you hear all these conversations from them. Like, what do you wish they knew that like too many of them don't know? Wow, that is a great question. All right, so I'll, I'll shuffle back then probably to my experience as a founder uh, at, at my last company, Sapling. And what I wish someone had pulled me aside and said is like, it is really important to align incentives between founders and investors. Now, what I mean by that is there are like, under the banner of being a venture investor, like that means many different things. You can be like a you know multi-billion dollar multi-stage firm that does all the way through to series E growth equity investing, right? Where you it's you know you're investing less on kind of the the blue sky opportunity, the vision, the charisma of the founder, and kind of like the potential, and you're then very much just investing on the economics of the business and and really just unpacking you know the financial financial models, all the way through to much earlier stage venture venture firms, similar to Bloom Capital, where we don't have too much data to go off. Where and oftentimes we're not looking at 36 months of financial reports. It's oftentimes, you know, this incredible founders uh, who are explaining, you know, their vision of the world to come. And we're and great, yeah, we, we want to be an economic sponsor to to that vision and, and a supporter. <clears throat> you know, the, the point around like alignment with investors is different funds, different investors have different goals. You know, investors have, have to go out and also do fundraising and bring in limited partners, which is basically where they raise money from to then go out and invest. And their goal is to obviously get a very strong return, beat the market for their type of investors as well. And so, you know, if you're partnering with a, the fund that's maybe, you know, 10, $30 million as a, as a fund writing very small early stage checks for them, you know, getting in an outcome where a company gets to maybe, uh, you know, 15, 30, $20 million of revenue and, and getting an exit pretty quickly, that can actually be pretty good economics for that particular fund. But for another different type of fund, they could consider that just a, a write-off and it's not actually going to move the needle. And as a result, you know, when a founder partners with them and comes, the, the more successful they become, the more acquisition offers will come to the table for the board to review. And oftentimes, you know, board members will just say like, hey, we should, we should keep going, you know, and, and if you're not the right founder, for, if you're not the right CEO for it, like, do you want to do a secondary and, and kind of, you know, step out of the way and, and bring in, you know, another CEO that was kind of, you know, interested in, in, in going the distance that this business has the potential for. So I think really understanding that alignment is just so important. And it's something that 
you know, I certainly didn't appreciate early in my earlier years as a founder and CEO going out for fundraising that, you know, typically bigger funds, later stage funds that, you know, they're just not interested in hundred, $200 million acquisitions. Like they, for them, it's not about singles and doubles or even a glad, uh, you know, even a home run. They're looking for grand slams. Whereas for other investors, you know, they're very much happy with just consistently picking up, you know, doubles and, and, you know, they can afford that because they're getting in really early stages valuations perhaps are, you know, a, a little bit more, you know, moderate and, uh, you know, for them, you know, maybe a, a 50, $100 million exit on the valuation that they came into the company is actually a good exit and, and, and a good, um, you know, good outcome for that venture firm. So spending time just to understand that and think through that it could be, you know, save a lot of pain uh, many years down the line once you've, uh, you know, started working with that, that, uh, that, that team. Got it. Yeah. That's, um, I, definitely people don't think about that enough. I know I don't think about that enough um, as I kind of go on my founder journey. Um, so I have a couple more, a couple more questions for you. Um, so first, the first one will be slight, slight joking. And then the second one will be a way to wrap it up. So you, as I have to ask, like you live in Scottsdale now, what has been the most like interesting restaurant or attraction or location or thing that you've discovered since living in Scottsdale um, and for people who don't realize, which is everyone, you know, he, he, you're living literally like five miles from where I grew up. So I'm very intrigued to know uh, what your thoughts are on this. Yeah. Great question. So, so first of all, a lot of people have actually asked like why Scottsdale and it's, it's pretty simple. My, my wife, uh, well, she grew up in East Bay, California originally and, and uh, sorry, East Bay of San Francisco. And, then uh, moved out to Scottsdale at a young age with her family and came back to San Francisco and, and worked in software industry for about nine years. And so we always decided with a, you know, eventually we're, we're going to look for a, a change of pace and, and, and move out again, just a thesis I hold, especially, a, you know, not needing to be uh, necessarily in San Francisco every day. I very much intend to be traveling back a lot to San Francisco, uh, you know, when kind of COVID makes that uh, more practical as well. But yeah, I think that the most exciting thing for me, look, as much as I love traveling, I really hadn't seen as much of America as I would love to have over the, you know, the five years building Sapling. It was you know, mainly going out to, to New York, Chicago, Boston, um, you know, other major metros. And it was pretty much all work related. I was kind of seven, seven days a week just building. And, uh, you know, I, I think obviously that, that comes with a sacrifice that all entrepreneurs know. And, um, you know, I think now uh, switching to the next stage of my career and, and kind of being out here in Scottsdale, I've uh, been incredibly active in going running uh, a lot and just the hiking out here has been fantastic, followed off by some, uh, some great Mexican. Uh, so that's, uh, that's been a blast to, uh, you know, see, see a different side of America, that's for sure. And, you know, equally, I, I, I had such FOMO leaving San Francisco. It's like, it's, you know, is this going to be a, a real knock to me and, and uh, to my wife professionally? But, you know, I think, yeah, it remains to be seen what happens, you know, as we turn the next corner and chapter of, of COVID and, you know, how workplaces start re, readjusting. But uh, certainly for, through 2020 to date, you know, just the ability to continue networking through Twitter and in other online forums and discussions is, um, yeah, I've actually kind of jokingly say like the last time I did this much networking was, you know, my first six months of landing in america and just kind of everything was brand new to me so um you know like 
Twitter to uh, you know to all it, to all its knocks the the kind of the Twitter doom that's quite prevalent you know just the ability to go and meet just amazing like minded like minded people but also people with like divergent views and interests it's you know one of the most amazing self curated MBAs and kind of twenty four seven conference halls that uh, I think exist so I've been pretty pretty active again on on Twitter this year after a, a five or so year hiatus. Yeah, Twitter is the best. I love Twitter. <laughs> That's how I mean, I, I've lived. I've never moved, lived in San Francisco. I've always been here. And the only reason people know who I am over there is because of the channel of Twitter um, mm-hmm. and the podcast, but like ma- ma- mainly Twitter. Um, so, so God bless that product. Although it does have the issues it has. Of course, there's also some great things about it. To finish off the podcast, if there are founders that are listening to this that, are, that kind of fit in any of your three categories, meaning they might want funding, they maybe they want to sell something to you, um, or uh, they want to get involved in any other capacity. Um, how can someone get in touch? Um, if how do you have an email? Can someone go to your website? How, how can someone reach you if they want to learn more and engage? Yep. So, firstly, website bloomvp.com, Bloom Venture Partners. Uh, definitely have an email. Always welcome people to uh, email through. I hate, the, I hate the concept of the stigma of like not cold emailing. Welcome to hit me up, uh, Bart at bloomvp.com. Uh, also, as I said, yeah, Twitter, I'm uh, really enjoying just meeting amazing people and just having conversations. It's kind of taking that virtual coffee catch up, uh, sorry, the coffee catch up in a more virtual format. So I'm loving that at Bart McDonald's is, uh, is where I'm at. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us for Partner Mondays. And I hope you have a, have a good rest of your day in Scottsdale. The weather is beautiful today. So go, if you're going hiking, go on a hike today because it's great. Yeah, I'll see you on Twitter. Thanks for coming cool. on. Will do. Thanks so much, Matt. Cheers. All right. Thank you so much for listening to the episode of Forward Thinking Founders. If you're sitting there, you're just saying, Matt, I want more. How can I get more? Well, luckily, you can get it at Forward Thinking City. Forward Thinking City is a community for the Forward Thinking Network, right? And we have multiple different aspects of the city. One, we have AMAs. Some of the previous guests that have been on the podcast, like Jonathan Barkle, Kristen Anderson, Austin Allred, come back and they do AMAs with the residents. You can ask them any question that you want, right? You can ask them about fundraising, the early days, how they got their customers. We do these every single week with another, you know, really great founder that has been on the podcast. Additionally, um, we have our pitch battles, right? So if you want feedback on your pitch and the opportunity to potentially pitch in front of VCs and talk one-on-one with venture capitalists, this is where to do it. These are monthly pitch battles. So if you don't get in the first time, try again, right? The goal is to improve and get feedback to eventually, one, raise, uh, get, get into the room with the VCs, two, raise capital, three, so you can get back to your company and building a great startup, building a great business. The last thing I'll mention is that if you were kind of interested in just community, we have our coffee hours and happy hours where you can meet other residents, learn about what they're working on, talk about social things, anything you want. This is a city for founders. It is for investors. Investors, it is for startup enthusiasts. It's for anyone that loves startups. So if you're interested in what I'm saying, go to forwardthinking.city and join the city for $15 a month. Um, you know, the way the reason I charge is because I want to be able to do this full time and bring as much value as I possibly can. And I think it's well worth the value. You can ask any of the current residents and they will attest to that. So go to forwardthinking.city. Join the city and you'll see immediately the the next AMA, the next pitch battle, the next event. And I hope to see you there. Forward thinking dot city. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow.